Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth, and open us to your love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the final sermon in a series on passages from the Bible I've never preached about before, mostly because there's something about them not to like. I have mentioned that all four of these sermons come out of the lectionary. It's a resource that assigns passages to be read each Sunday. Every week there are four different passages to choose from in the lectionary. And in the past month, I've gone out of my way to choose the one that is the least appealing. Today's New Testament lesson is my worst choice yet. In it, the Apostle Paul argues against the ancient Israelite practice of the priest gaining compensation from the offerings at the temple. Paul claims his preaching of the gospel is best when it is offered free of charge. And Paul takes a day job as a tent maker so that he does not have to survive on the offerings of the people. As Jana mentioned in the announcements, today between our services we held the annual meeting of our congregation. Today is the day we vote to receive our budget for the coming year, including your approval to pay Jana and me a salary. Yes, you heard that correctly. Less than an hour after voting to keep paying your pastors, we read a passage from the Bible that advises against it. That's actually not the reason I chose this passage to be part of this series. It's got other challenges that are much more substantial. One problem is that this passage shares with many others in the Bible an unapologetic reference to slavery. On many occasions, the Bible uses slavery as a metaphor or includes the presence of slaves in a story, rarely raising any objections about the practice of one human being owning and abusing another. There is really only one explanation for this, which is that the writers of these ancient texts were so thoroughly surrounded by slavery that many of them were blind to the horror of it. Some folks are satisfied to acknowledge that historical disconnect and then to lay the issue aside. But that's not good enough. I think we ought to remind ourselves, as often as we read these passages, of at least two things. First, that passages like these are a warning to all of us to be on the lookout for injustices in our own world to which we have become blind. Surely there are awful and dehumanizing institutions that we allow to continue out of our own ignorance or lack of desire to make a change. The second reminder and the reason the historical excuse is not good enough 
is that slavery is not over. Not only in faraway places, but in our state of Ohio and our city of Cincinnati, there are instances of the trafficking of both children and adults for reasons of sex as well as hard labor. Slavery persists in dark and very lucrative corners of our economy today. If you are inclined to learn more about this, including what you can do to help, the Freedom Center downtown is currently hosting an excellent exhibit on modern-day slavery and its many forms, domestic and abroad. I went to see it this week. I commend it to you, acknowledging this whenever we read one of these passages is truly the least we can do. I have a third problem with this text we read from 1 Corinthians, one that keeps me from preaching on a lot of passages from the letters of Paul. I don't like this passage because it's complicated. It's hard to explain. In these letters, there is rarely a short and powerful story being told, as there often is in the Gospel lesson for the week. In Paul's letters, stories like the prodigal son, or the good Samaritan, or the feeding of the 5,000 are replaced by lengthy arguments and philosophical debates about the meaning of Christianity. And often, I fear that those passages seem inaccessible and irrelevant to us. So I started this sermon quite intentionally by using a couple of real-world examples, slavery and ministry compensation, simply to demonstrate that these letters do involve practical matters. But its deepest meaning emerges only if you dig a little deeper and engage Paul's philosophical arguments. For it is there that you find what he is really talking about, that following Christ as part of a community means going above and beyond what is required. In this passage, Paul is writing a letter in response to a difficult situation in one of the early churches at Corinth. The problem is presented in the chapter before the one from which we read. In the church in Corinth, there is a group of people who have been followers of Jesus for a while, and there's another group who seem to be newer. Perhaps they were converts from other religions. The issue at hand is that there are other religions outside of the Christian church in Corinth, and these other religions involve animal sacrifice, and some members of the church have been going to the market and buying meat that was used in those sacrifices, buying it at a discounted price, and eating it to the great horror of other members of the church. Now, the people buying and eating the meat claim that what they're doing is no big deal. They don't believe in animal sacrifice themselves. They don't believe in those other religions. So for them, the meat was just slaughtered, and they're eating it with no religious implications at all. 
But some of the other members of the community are uncomfortable with that argument. It just seems wrong to them. And to make a long story short, Paul says to the first group, Anytime, anytime you are engaging in a behavior that is a stumbling block to somebody else's faith, you should change your behavior in order to avoid hurting the others. All of that is a backdrop to the passage we read, in which Paul goes yet deeper on the subject. He says that this is really a matter of freedom, and that real, mature freedom is a mixture of rights and responsibilities and rewards. In the context of Corinth, Paul says that some people may have the right to do things like eat meat that was part of a sacrifice, but they have the greater responsibility to care about the faith of others in their community. And Paul then goes into a series of statements about how he makes adjustments to his own behavior in order to advance his ministry. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, he says, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I have become all things to all people says Paul. And if you don't back up and understand the context for that statement, it sounds an awful lot like Paul is playing some sort of political game, changing his story to suit every situation, and not really living a life full of integrity. But what he is actually doing is quite different than that. Hearing the context helps us understand Paul's real message that when it comes to building a community of faith, he always makes his own preferences secondary to the needs of others. For Paul, being a Christian means doing more than the minimum the job requires, and he tells the members of the church at Corinth that they should follow his lead doing not just what is best for themselves, but placing the needs of others first. We love people who go the extra mile like this. It seems to be built into our DNA. I was talking with one of you this week who made it a point to tell me what a great dentist you have. Why? Because every night... Every night that he sees patients, that dentist goes home at night, and around 7 p.m., he calls every patient he had that day just to make sure they're still feeling all right. It's a pretty simple thing, but no small commitment for that dentist, and it really makes an impression on his patients. Other examples are much more powerful than that one. There is not a State of the Union address that goes by without celebrating the sacrifice of a woman or man in our country's military who has put their life on the line in order to save someone else. 
regardless of political leanings or the point that is being made, every president's speechwriter agrees that these are stories that deserve to be told and that people want to hear. The hard part is that as much as we respect and admire this kind of sacrificial behavior among others, we sometimes forget to think about our own church in the same way. In our culture that includes so many transactions and so much consumer behavior, even church can become a matter of seeking out our own preferences. Church becomes a series of assessments about whether a particular congregation is meeting one's needs. To the extent that no one really bats an eye anymore when someone says they are church shopping, which is a term and an idea that never used to exist. It's tempting at this point to allow this sermon to quickly go way downhill into a debate of our various rights and responsibilities as members of the church, to argue through what we think should be required of each of us and conversely what each of us deserves. But again, Paul is one step ahead of us. He corrects us by indicating that his concern is not one of rights and responsibilities. No. For Paul, being part of a church community is about rewards. When church is done right, the real rewards are greater than any rights you might demand or responsibilities you might take on. In Paul's words, being part of a community means that you don't feel any burdens, nor do you make any demands. The rewards are so great that you put others' needs in front of your own, and in doing so, Paul says, you live a life free of charge. That's what church is supposed to feel like. It's supposed to feel free of charge for all of us. The demands for our rights and the burden of responsibilities disappear and we receive the reward of grace. Theologian Miroslav Volf wrote a book called Free of Charge. It starts with a story about the day he and his wife adopted their first child. They met the birth mother at the hospital and Wolf writes a gracious, kind, heartbreaking account of meeting this woman who knew she could not care for her child and what it must have been like for her to entrust him to the care of someone else. Less than an hour before that happened, on the way to the hospital, Wolf and his wife, in their excitement about the adoption, were pulled over for a minor traffic violation. Wolf, who is an immigrant from Croatia, had no idea what a mistake he was making when he got out of the car as the officer approached, and a very difficult situation ensued. 
He tells the stories of the birth mother and the police officer side by side, and he tells them both with compassion. Each person in both stories, himself included, is simply a flawed, struggling, partially informed human being trying to do their best. He tells these two stories together to make a point like the one that Paul is making about the church. Each and every day in countless circumstances, we have the chance to approach one another seeking to understand a little better, to extend a bit more grace than we need to, to put the well-being of another person ahead of our own. And when we do so, there is a cumulative good in our communities that cannot help but increase. As we approach the Lord's table together today, I'm grateful for the many ways in which all of you come into this place. On Sundays and throughout the week, you summon within yourself the gift of God's grace so that you might be toward one another and toward the world beyond these walls a little more loving than you have to be, a little more understanding than you have to be, more forgiving than you have to be, more gracious than we have to be. To be part of such a community is a reward. Amen.